Cheers rise for their majesties of Royally Obsessed, the podcast for all things royals. Three cheers for His Majesty the King. Welcome to a special episode of Royally Obsessed. We're bringing you all of our thoughts on The Crown, Season 6, Part 1. Rachel, I'm so excited to discuss this with you. Special bonus episode. We're spending it on the first four episodes. All right, quick housekeeping before we dive in. Follow us on Instagram at Royally Obsessed Podcast and send us a note. What were your crown thoughts on season six, part one? Info at gallery podcasts with an S on the end.com. That's the email to send us a note about all of your thoughts. The episodes, the names are episode one, Persona Non Grata, episode two, Two Photographs, episode three, Dimoam We, and episode four, Aftermath. So let's get into it. Deep breaths. Oh my gosh. As a reminder, these four episodes cover the eight weeks leading up to and immediately following Diana's death between July 1997 and September 1997. I'm saying it here loud and clear. Spoiler alert. Do not proceed if you have not watched yet. We do not want to be responsible for ruining anyone's viewing experience, but come back to us once you've finished. I also wanted to call out the fact that I was so surprised that some of the episodes were slightly shorter. Like when I think there's one that's in the 30 minute range, episode two, is it? And that just really was surprising because I'm used to the crown being really a full hour. I'm jumping ahead just to say that I think it should have been one long episode that covered all of this. Hot take. And now it's time for the Weekly Royal Cocktail. Before we do that, though, we always leave time for a royal refreshment, and this week is no different. Our bonus episode, we're sipping. I want to do I want to do this because I don't know if you noticed this, Rachel, but in episode three, D. Mwawi, in Dodie's apartment after they're trying to go to the Ritz Paris restaurant, They pour a bottle of what's supposed to be champagne, but it's not bubbly. What's going on? It's just white wine. Why? I don't I didn't like that. I thought it was kind of a plot hole. So that's what I'm sipping is just white wine (laughs) from the fridge. You are always so attentive to those uh, cocktail details and wine details. I love that about you. You're very good at it. I tried to look this up on on Reddit and nobody really I don't think anyone's noticed, but it it was kind of strange. Like when you pour a glass of bubbly, you know immediately that the bubbles like yeah. it just felt like they just kind of were shortcutting it. So also, I wanted to mention, too, that that scene, I thought it was interesting. And I didn't know if you thought this, too. Why were they seated in the middle of the restaurant when Dinah has that big breakdown? The little girl looks at her. Why in the middle of the Ritz restaurant? This this just was so strange to me, that whole like 20 minutes. Well, with, we're going to fact check some of that, too, because I do have some potential intel on that. All right. Well, let's quickly note, because we did reach out to our following, our Instagram account did, asking, you know, are you binging it? Are you savoring it? What's your plan to watch? A lot of people said they're saving it for Thanksgiving weekend. Other people said that they were just blowing through it. We got a lot of comments saying that they binged it right when it came out. Pretty much what we did as well. You know, some of the comments we loved were realizing it's fiction with a few facts thrown in. That is a very, very important take, I think, about all of The Crown, but especially this season. And this is something we've all lived through. So we have our own recollection of it as well. Also, shout outs galore to Elizabeth Debicki. What a performance she gave. Another commenter said they want to give it space because of how sad they'll feel when it's over. A lot of people familiarizing themselves with the Dodie story, too. Yeah. And I think a lot of people for them and for us, too, we've all lived through it. And so 
it's a little bit hard to watch this season more so than other seasons because of our intimacy with the storyline. So I think that was kind of an over overarching comment from a lot of people was that it is difficult to watch. And we'll get into that in a second. But kicking off the Crown Part 1 coverage, first, we're going to get into gut reactions. Second, we're going to get into anything we fact-checked. Third, we're going to award an Emmy for best performance, each of us. And finally, the last section of this is a royal review out of 10. Move over, Ebert and Roper. This is Bert and Bowie, royal review out of 10. So it's those four sections that we're covering. So first up, we have Gut Reactions, part one, season six. Rachel, you have the floor. Oh, wow. I feel so special. Please interject nonstop. Okay. I think my overall take about this season is one of the bigger ones is that Charles officially, Dominic West, is just too good looking to play Charles. It really (laughs) threw me in this particular season because I felt like Charles in the form of, or Dominic West in the form of Charles, was almost dreamy for me this season. I know that it's the second Mm. time he played this role, but there are many scenes where he says all the right things. He's trying so hard. He made traditional slash stable values seem appealing versus Diana, which I feel like we, it just kind of, for me, like, just felt really at odds with what we know actually happened in our own personal experience watching this play out. I felt like I almost wanted an invite to Camilla's 50th birthday party. That's how stunning some of the scenes with him felt. What did you think? You're totally right. And I think a lot of the coverage has been how pro-Charles this season is. I think we see Charles really fight for the public funeral, which we don't know that that's actually the case. We see him really step up to the plate and be a good father figure. I think that Peter Morgan has taken the pro-Charles thing a little too far because we saw that last year, too, when we had, you know, that Princess Trust episode. And, like, I just feel like it's so heavy on Charles being actually a good guy. And we know how horribly he treated Diana. So I think I think you're right. It's a good gut reaction. Well, it's not to discount that there were really great moments that Charles did. I just felt like it was very heavy handed in the fictionalization of it. And I really had a hard time seeing the alternate perspective because I was almost like leaning towards Charles when I have a different view. Okay, my gut reaction is I just want to applaud quickly the young actors in this actors, Rufus Campa and Flynn Edwards, who are Harry and William incredible job. I was blown away by them. I was so wary going into it because they don't look like the real people at all to me. And so I didn't think that it would be that good of a season. And they just hit it out of the park. I think they were tremendous. Every scene they were in, I had tears in my eyes. It was wonderful. So that was my gut reaction. Yeah, I agree with you. I feel like Harry especially just I couldn't look at a scene with him without welling up. I totally agree. I know. Okay, this is the question I really need to ask you because this made the most headlines, I think. The ghost of Diana and Dodie. Yay or nay for you? Yay. (gasps) It was yay for me too. It was. Okay, good. Because I really, we really needed that closure and we really needed, I wanted more ghosts. I wanted more appearances by them because what really felt like if the crown is going to fictionalize anything, let it fictionalize all the way. That's how I feel like we obviously understand that Peter Morgan has creative license with all of this. Let's just keep it going. I feel like those scenes with Diana talking to Charles about how raw his reaction was in the morgue about Dodie telling his father, like, 
you can't do anything now, but just try to tell the truth. Oh, my gosh. I have chills just thinking about it. It was so good to hear from the ghost. I know. I know. It was so validating. I do have to say that I was telling Matt, who hasn't watched, and I'm not sure if he's going to or not, but we did watch the earlier seasons together. He was very confused about the ghost. He was like, was she transparent? I was like, no, it's fully Elizabeth Debicki across from Charles on the plane. I was like, no, this wasn't like a ghost haunting people or anything. She says, ta-da, at the beginning. Yeah, I think for me, the ghost just really captured Diana's humor. And the thing she said to Charles, I totally agree. It gave us closure. And I think it just it made me it made me just absolutely sob because I think you think about the sheer mm-hmm. tragedy of Diana's loss and the grief we felt for it. And just when someone dies so young and so suddenly, it's really, really hard. So I loved, loved the ghost. Me too. I want to just quick tangent. If anyone's watching Lessons in Chemistry, have you watched this, Rachel? With Brie Larson? I just started it. I'm reading the book too. Yes. Okay. Well, then I... I don't want to spoil it for you. You can't say anything more. <laughs> You're like, that's the end. No. Similar, and that's it. And it's just heartbreaking. And so seeing that kind of plot device play out on screen for The Crown 2 was just, wow. Yeah, I just it loved really it. Good. All right. My other gut reaction is the Queen and Philip's heartlessness throughout it all. I think what's really hard is obviously also post-mortem of the Queen passing and Prince Philip, we hold these people on a pedestal and they seem faultless and we remember their legacy and all the good parts. But I guess it was just a reminder that no one's faultless and the Queen and Prince Philip were very cold and I, it was hard to watch. It was hard to watch them kind of treat Diana's death like an afterthought and something that needed to be mitigated, just like How the queen is saying, you know, we just want to keep it normal for the boys. These boys just lost their mother. Like, their lives will never be the same. I think it was really hard. And to see her deliver that speech so stiffly, too. We've seen, you know, Helen Mirren do that in The Queen, which is also a Peter Morgan production. We've seen that speech so many times. You and I have watched it. And I don't know. It just it's so cold the way they act in the aftermath. But I guess I think I had like a slightly alternate view only because I felt like that was so much of the fictionalization because it it almost felt like Peter Morgan took the stance of the of the Queen movie where it was like she was staying to protect the boys. And I see that value, too. But she needed to go and be the grandmother to the nation in that moment as well. But I think it's just where that editorialization goes on. Like what actually happened? I wish we knew. You know what I mean? We'll never know. But it's like, were they being heartless? What was the plan? there. I really don't. I really don't know. Well, and I think, too, like it's a through line that Peter Morgan continues because in the beginning, the first episode, we see kind of that heartlessness come in with Camilla birthday party. And you you almost the Rolls Royce excuse for the factory tour. It's like so pathetic. And and you just feel like can't she like she's seen the destruction it's caused Princess Margaret, which I think is why Princess Margaret was there and calls her after and says, look, like you need to support this love, this romance. It's real. They love each other so much. So I don't know. I just the queen is Melda Stoughton is really a, a letdown for me in this season. But I think we should move on to anything we fact checked. All right. Anything we fact check. I mean, we have so much more. I feel like it's hard to put this into one episode, right? OK, the fact checking. One of my biggest questions was, did William really go missing at Balmoral the day after he learns his mother dies? Yes, I was wondering that, too. I was so curious. And I did a little digging and 
So the verdict is still kind of up in the air. This this is a subplot used to sort of prove that the queen, that her silence is deafening. Post Diana's death, the world is acting crazy. And William is just an example of that. So we kind of it's a, a little bit to nudge the queen into doing something about Diana's death. But did William really go missing for 14 hours? And in a documentary called Diana's Seven Days, William spoke Prince William, the real Prince William, not the crown, spoke about the days at Balmoral Castle following his mother's death. He says, I remember just feeling completely numb, disoriented, dizzy. You feel very, very confused. And you keep asking yourself, why me all the time? Why? What have I done? Why? Why has this happened to us? In 2021, Prince William also spoke about finding solace in the Scottish outdoors right after his mother's death. He gave an emotional speech at the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland where he said, I was in Balmoral when I was told my mother had died. Still in shock, I found sanctuary in the service at Crathy Kirk the very morning and in the dark days of grief that followed. I found comfort and solace in the Scottish outdoors. As a result, the connection I feel to Scotland will forever run deep. So, There's no confirmation he actually went missing for 14 hours. I think this is just creative license with the crown. But it is interesting that he has spoken so extensively about those days afterward. Mm -hmm. It does sound like he might have taken a walk, done something. So the verdict is no, but possibly. Yeah, I know. I did like that Peter Morgan included so much of William's perspective. Obviously, in real life, not Crown World, we have so much of Harry's take on those events, mm-hmm. less of William's. And this is a fictionalized account. But I do think William was of an older age going through this. And I think that that impact, again, the grief and that tragedy, how yeah. it impacted both boys so differently is fascinating to kind of relive even a fictionalized version. How many times am I going to say fictionalized in this episode? What did you fact check the most? Okay, so I fact-checked um, the Paris detour and timeline. Why I couldn't find much about why they detoured to Paris, but I did, I, you know, I mentioned this at the top of the episode. Part of the frenzy that began that night of August 31st was that the Ritz was not expecting them for dinner, a dinner reservation. Mm-hmm. They were staying there, but they had gone to Dodie's apartment and then came over, and so they didn't have that plan. So it was they were caught off guard, which made it extra chaotic. And they I wonder what the Ritz would have done. It was obviously a hotel owned by Mohammed Al-Fayed at the time. But it's like, how would they have handled it slightly differently? I'm not sure. But that was kind of a question mark there. I just also thought, you know, that decoy exit where there was a chauffeur at the front to throw off the photographers and then they exited through the back. But that again, just contributed to the chaos. And that really did happen. So I was really curious about the course of events there. I want to talk to you about this because I guess what it seems like is that Peter Morgan's reason for why Diana was in Paris that night is that they need to ask Mohammed's permission to use his private jet. And Mohammed Al-Fayed wants them to stop in Paris, outside of outside of Paris, to see Villa Windsor, which he really did buy in real life. So then there's that scene where he calls. He's not even there, which is so annoying. Diana and Dodie show up. It's like a detour that she doesn't want. She has to call the boys. She has a phone date. And... Mohammed calls to tell Diana that he wants them to fill the former home of the Duke and Wallace Simpson with their love and happiness, which is gross and creepy that you're like potential father-in-law saying this, even though he's not potential father-in-law. He's just like this weird old guy. So at this point, you realize, and I think I realized that Diana and Dodie just have no control over their schedule. They, she's totally at the whim of Dodie. Dodie's directing where they go. Mohammed is kind of pulling the strings behind the scenes. 
But is that the real reason that she was in Paris? Do we know that it was because she couldn't fly commercial? That's what I'm saying is that I could not find anything that explained why they detoured. I think that that was something that was not confirmed about the reason behind it. Was it just the direct way? I had remembered seeing something about weather patterns way back when, but I could not find what was the, but it was something I was Googling and curious about for sure. I think that's why the crown kind of filled in the blanks that way because they think, you know, there isn't really. But it is very obvious much. why. Yeah. Filling in the blanks. What else did you fact check? I also fact-checked, did Dodie buy an engagement ring for Diana? And the answer is yes. So I didn't know this, but he did buy an 11,600-pound engagement ring a few hours before the couple's car crash. So this was all part of the investigation after the death. There's grainy CCTV footage from Raposi Jewelry Shop across the square from the Ritz Hotel in Paris, taken the afternoon before the crash, that shows Dodie, who wasn't accompanied by the princess at the time, inspecting rings. He leaves with a brochure. Later, CCTV footage shows Claude Roulette, an assistant to the president of the Ritz, visiting the shop, taking an item in a bag to the couple's room at the Imperial Suite in the Ritz. The bags deposited in the hotel's strong room before the couple went to Dodie's flat. So the ring had the inscription, Dimoui, which means tell me yes. It was recovered from Dodie's flat after the couple's death. A receipt from August 30th was also found the day before the crash listing a engagement ring. So this is true. He did buy the ring. But was it an engagement, officially engagement ring? I guess if it said Dimoine, we. It says the receipt says it specifically bague de fiancée, which is engagement ring. That's what the receipt says. I don't know why it wouldn't say like just the name of the ring, but I guess... I guess he hadn't proposed, though. The inquest found that he actually didn't ever propose with the ring. I think that was something that was, you know, creative liberty on the part of the Crown. But the verdict is this is true. Fascinating. All right. I guess a couple more things I fact check really quickly. Kelly Fisher. I just was curious where she is now. Aaron Richards played her in The Crown. They did have an August 9th wedding date. Just her role. Dodie really did have her on a separate yacht, would visit her at night. As part of the inquest, she said, you seduced Diana all day and expletive here, me all night. Mm-hmm. I just feel like that is just sick. And that was one thing. Dodie is so soft spoken in this and really manipulated by Mohammed Al-Fayed throughout the season and Peter Morgan's portrayal of him. But I feel like I just remember the depiction of him as such like a playboy in that time. Mm-hmm. I mean, tabloid generated depiction. But it is kind of fascinating to think about Kelly Fisher and the impact there. And she obviously sued Dodie and then waived those that charge once he passed away. She is married to a pilot now, and she's totally out of mm. the public eye in South Carolina. She's a property developer. That's where she lives. I can't imagine what this has done to her life to bring this all back via the crown. That's so interesting. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Because he really was engaged when he was with Diana on the boat. Yeah. One other random thing I did fact check that I wanted to I just quickly Googled while watching is tinted vehicles. When were those invented? Because I just feel like all the Paris Mm. scenes like it just feels like why wasn't that privacy there? I mean, they, of course, would know that it's Diana and Dodie. Is this just in the crown that we see through the windows? I don't understand because I did find out tinted windows were invented in the 1960s and they were a detail of choice (laughs) for luxury cars in the 70s and 80s. So they would have firmly been a part of a luxury vehicle. In this era, in 1997. Mm -hmm. 
That's so interesting, too. The only other thing that I wanted to fact check was did Muhammad Al-Fayed actually hire the paparazzi photographer Mm. who took the photos that landed on the front pages that really outed the relationship of Diana and Dodie and that kind of started to spin things out of control in the crown and in real life, it's Mario Brenna, who's a paparazzi, who has never spoken to an English language publication before, but spoke to the New York Times after the season aired. And he wanted to clear the record that he was not hired by Mohammed Al-Fayed, uh, which the crown shows. But the New York Times does also interview the research team, the head of the research team behind the crown. And they note that the number one theory about how Brenna managed to find the Jonakal in the Mediterranean Sea was that one of Al-Fayed's employees did leak the boat's location to Brenna. Now, the photographer denies this. He says, that's not true. I was, I noticed a blonde on a boat. I went up to the boat. I took pictures. I noticed later it was Diana. I had a home in that area, so I was always there. He doesn't say that anyone hired him, but this is a theory that the Crown Research Team found and found it credible. So it's kind of his word against theirs. And so the verdict is that probably not Mohammed Al-Fayed himself, but possibly someone on Al-Fayed's team. Fascinating. Wow. And that photographer was paid $5 million. Five million pounds or five million dollars for those images. Really, I mean, you think back to the Britney doc that it's like just the the culture of that and how much you can make from those images is so upsetting. It is. All right. Let's move on to and the Emmy goes to Rachel. Kick us off. Okay, I'm super torn. But of course, this goes without saying Elizabeth Debicki. I actually pulled up Naomi Watts, who I love as an actress, her performance in Diana for comparison, just looking at the different portrayals of Diana in these different films. Elizabeth Debicki was just nailed it. The the voice, the Mm -hmm. looks, the demeanor, I think, you know, the accent, the eyes. Also, Mohamed El-Fayed, who was played by Salim Da, just absolutely nailed. I went and watched some old interviews with Mohamed El-Fayed and just he absolutely captured the passion, the ambition, the just the details of his expressiveness, I thought that performance absolutely deserved an Emmy. Yeah, I felt like we were really watching the real Mohamed Al-Fayed, who did pass away earlier this year, by the way. Yeah, he passed away in August. Best performance for me, the Emmy goes to Khalid Abdallah, who plays Dodi Al-Fayed. I was equal parts disgusted with how he acted, especially toward Kelly Fisher and toward Diana, the manipulation that went into it. But also, so I felt so sorry for him. His dad put so much pressure on him. And I think the behind the scenes kind of string pulling that was going on that Dodie really didn't have any control over his destiny either. Although you wish that he really had made that speech where he stands up to his father on the phone instead of kind of pressing the end call button before. And we realized that toward the end that Diana knew that he was faking it all along and she saw right through his little act. But oh, I just looking into Dodie's eyes at some of those scenes like there's you do fall in love with him a little bit. Yeah. and You do feel like these two people are in this terrible circumstance. What's so sad to me is that Dodie's often forgotten in the storyline yeah. of Diana's death. And I think that it was a really good decision on the Crown's part to also show part of his funeral Islam religion about the mourning in Cairo and Baghdad. And, you know, he tells his father, I'm a hero in these places. Why do you look to the West? I think it, it just it was an amazing performance. And I want to give it credit. 
Yeah. And back to Muhammad, too, when he was just waiting to hear from the family, too, and they didn't reach out. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know if that happened. Another thing to fact check, right? I just feel like that was so sad to watch. All right. Our royal review out of 10. What do you think? Burton Bowie's hot take. Okay, my review is a six out of 10. I'm docking points because I think it was very slow. I don't think we needed four episodes to go through this. I really wish it had been one long episode. We had that car and tunnel scene twice. It was like a prologue and then it shows again. Yeah. What did you think of the car crash and how it was handled? I feel like they were a little too careful. And that's not to say that I want to see like the all the gory guts and everything. But I just think that they maybe thought a little too much about handling this with respect and care. And of course, of course, we want them to handle it with respect and care. But it just felt a little too safe when it came to the actual crash. And I do wish that four episodes over eight weeks, it should have been one episode over six weeks. Like it was just, I think back to like early seasons of The Crown and we have like, Aberfan disaster. We have, you know, the Thatcher years. We those are all one episode. There and it's mm-hmm. a very big touch point in history. But it's one episode to draw this out when everyone really kind of knows the history of it. It just felt too gratuitous. And I don't know. What did you think? Yeah, I mean, I'm matching your score. I think I was leaning towards a seven. I'm going with a six out of ten. Also, I didn't love many parts of this season, and I just think the editorialization is just so tough with events that are so close to the present. It felt super rushed to me. Like I think you're you're hitting it on the head where you had these huge episodes to one event. And I think maybe that would have slowed it down slightly, but stretching it over the four, something about it and covering that exact eight weeks didn't sit with me well. I also think it's just interesting how this is a case where as we watch, we're matching it with our own perspective. We live through it so closely. And I found myself wrestling with that as we went through it because it's hard to alter my memories and reality of what happened. Does that make sense? I think my last negative is just that I do feel like it did Diana dirty a little bit. Like I felt like episodes one through three until the ghost appeared. I didn't feel I mean, I felt like it trivialized her existence a little. We felt more in tune with the Queen's perspective and Charles, the good looking Charles's perspective than we did with Diana. And she just seemed so frivolous. And I just didn't love that. Yeah, because they don't really take any time to show the impact her death has on the wider world. Like the only time we get that is like there's a few scenes of crowds outside Buckingham Palace. And then there's the kids running along the street in Paris after she's died and people clapping as Charles goes by to and he's on his way to visit the morgue. But other than that, we don't get really the impact that the death of the people's princess had on the world. And I think that's such a miss. It really does kind of just say these two people died and here's what happened after. It's just so rushed. It's just so compressed. And it. I think if we were to think about the touch points in our royal watching history, like this is the major one, but this is also for our generation. So it's hard. We're too close. We're too close to it. It's time for the Royal Highs and Lows. All right, before we adjourn the Royal Pod, our highs and lows of The Crown Season 6 Part 1. My low is the whales, not those whales, is the <laughs> whales of sound. You get this deafening silence in so many parts of Episode 4 called The Aftermath. And then we get 
this momentous ah, from Charles in Scotland, in Balmoral, or conversely, Mohammed Al-Fayed's guttural yell in the morgue in Paris that totally just took the air from my lungs. It took the floor from beneath me. I sobbed. I mean, these these sounds when it just... And I don't think this is a low. It's just that the show really did affect me emotionally at these moments. But I think how this is a low is that we don't we see the how these men are affected and we hear it audibly. But what we don't get and what just rehashing what I just said is that Diana, how does her death affect the public? Because we only see that in such small, tiny snippets, like when William's walking by in the casket and, you know, Philip tells him, no, they're crying for you. It's, we don't really see that much of the world's outpouring of grief. And I think that that is a miss for me. So I, I don't know. This is all over the yeah. place, but that's my low. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 totally. I, I, I agree. And those whales were really hard to watch. I also thought the silence was really deafening. Like it really worked well as a, as a tool. I feel like for me, it was just reliving the death of Diana. Like you, I was kind of going along. Like I knew what was coming. I wasn't super emotional as I was watching. And then the crash scene happened the second time in the third episode and I was decimated, but it was episode four for me. It was what everyone still living went through getting that news, the lights flicking on at Balmoral Castle window by window. And the when that guy, the actor, took a breath before telling Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip that Diana was in the hospital. She hadn't yet passed. They didn't have that no- news. And even Charles saying, while they're asleep, they still have a mother about Harry and William. I was decimated by that. And I think for me, like, I just... I've said this before on the podcast, but it's such a weird thing about my life. But when this happened, I think this is the truth for so many people that were alive when Diana passed away that or just became, I don't know, became royal watchers maybe related to that. But I just I was so young. I think I was in ninth grade when it happened. And it just like I could not breathe watching that happen. And I think for me, seeing it in the Crown's portrayal, now being a mom, my perspective was totally altered thinking about William and Harry. I thought of it at the time, but from the kid point of view. And then rewatching it now as the mom, I was just thinking about, again, who was left behind and the way that was visualized and presented by Peter Morgan, I thought was done really beautifully. But it was a low. Why am I? But it was just a low to relive it. I'm like, why was this a low? It was a low to relive it. Yeah. Neither of our lows are actual lows, but my high, though, of the of this batch of four episodes is I do like that Peter Morgan and the Crown have Diana and Charles make peace before her death. They agree to be good co-parents. We have that scene of them, you know, Charles picking up the boys. There's this mutual understanding between them of life going forward. It feels like if she had lived, things would be OK. And that, I feel like, set my mind at peace and... You know, we have the closure of the ghost of Diana telling Charles, you know, I loved you so much and I'm going to cry. I'm going to cry. That moment is so emotional. I just I think that it was it is true. What we've learned from interviewing people on the podcast from guests, previous guests, is that they did agree to be good co-parents, that they really did have this mutual understanding. (laughs) I can't believe I'm crying right now. I don't know why I'm crying. They did have a mutual understanding about life moving forward and how, you know, it would be difficult, but that Diana would make her way in the world. We saw her, you know, do the landmines. And I I appreciate that so much that that's clear in The Crown, because from all the research that we've done for our book, for the podcast, 
that is true. That is true. And that is how they left things. And I think that that was really nice to see. Like they were better co-parents. They were uh, better not married, even though they still had their snafus and things getting through the divorce and stuff. It seemed like they were reaching a new point in their relationship. It was nice that that was included. And that is fact. Yeah. You want if like, you know, Diana's death, you you just want to know that there was some peace and harmony left in her life. There was so, so little of that. And it feels like closure for us that that they do show us that. Like you said earlier, if we're going to fictionalize, it was nice that Peter Morgan gave us those moments, right? And even though yeah. that was truth, it was just like, include that ghost scene. You know what I mean? We don't yeah. know what she would have said. She, that doesn't happen. But giving us that as an audience. But I think that's what we've heard from like even her private secretary, Patrick Jepson and all that, that they really did have this mutual understanding before her death. And that feels like a weight off of our shoulders a little bit to know that everything was okay it was pro charles which i just moving in the right direction right yeah exactly but the ghost did not likely visit unless i don't know there is paranormal activity at a lot of those castles well my high totally switching focus for a light ending on a very light note elizabeth debicki's fashion just bravo Mm. the costume designer for the crown amy roberts The diving board scene in particular, just absolutely stunning. Just a replica of what it looked like in those images. The white shorts and racerback tank aboard the yacht, even the white pants and the blazer at the Ritz. And and I think Elizabeth Debicki, just her stature and her hair, just chef's kiss. And earrings. There's like 30 pairs of gold earrings that I need to buy now. (laughs) Yes, I know. I know. It was just fantastic. And I think just reliving that element of it was really fun. I'm enjoying those deep dives of people that are covering that online. Also, the Crown Auction. Did you hear about this? No. That they're going to be auctioning off 450 props, costumes, and furniture on February 7th at Bonhams from the entire arc of the show. (gasps) Um, If you, I didn't throw this link in here for you. Hold on. But you can bid on Diana's revenge dress. Obviously, what Elizabeth Debicki wore, her version version of it. I could get some of the earrings. You could get some of the earrings, but there are so many amazing items and everyone should check out Bonhams on Instagram to see what's coming and they'll be having a live auction. So a lot to look forward to in that sense. All right. Just a reminder before we close, please let us know your thoughts on The Crown Season 6 Part 1. You can email us at info at gallerypodcasts.com. You can also follow the show on Instagram at Royally Obsessed Podcast. Please leave a review wherever you listen. We love kind reviews and we want to hear your thoughts as well obviously we barely scraped the surface with this recap we're going to have so many continual thoughts i'm sure you and i are going to rewatch if our hearts can take it this series or this season part one but part two is right around the corner on december 14th so that's all coming up we'll be discussing in full again till next week god, god save, save the, the pod. pod her majesties of royally obsessed have retired for this episode God save the pod. And if you fancy the podcast, give Royally Obsessed the royal rating of five stars on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Royally Obsessed Podcast and join our Facebook group, Royally Obsessed. Royally Obsessed is a gallery podcast production.